Hello and welcome to St Emlyn's. My name's Simon Carley and in a few moments you're going to hear a podcast that we recorded at the recent Smack Dublin conference. It's about handover. It's about how the hospital interfaces with the pre-hospital teams and how we can perhaps make that better. Put a great team together, I'll get them on here, get them to introduce themselves. I'm Simon Carley. And I'm Natalie May. Hello, my name's Doug Lynch. I'm a pre-hospital doctor. I'm Ashley Liebig, pre-hospital flight nurse. Hi, I'm Rusty, I'm paramedic. And we're here at the Smack Dub conference. It's really been a great conference for the last few days. And one of the brilliant things about Smack is it's a real interface. There aren't many conferences that bring people together from the worlds of pre-hospital care, critical care, emergency medicine, and really have that opportunity to talk about how we work together. And in particular, talk about some of the interfaces between those organisations and that the patient really about when they traverse from one system to another and that's what we thought we'd talk about today. Natalie what was the main thing that we we're going to try and tackle? So we've been talking a little bit about how how things work when you bring your patient from the pre-hospital environment into the hospital environment and that's become really pertinent for me because I've always worked on the very much the inside side of that transaction uh, and now of course I'm working in pre-hospital in Sydney and I'm finding out how it feels on the other side and it's really it's given me some great opportunities for reflection about how, how I approach interactions with my paramedic and pre-hospital colleagues. So you've noticed some issues around the bringing patients into the ED. Um, and I think I've, I've felt some uncomfortableness about um, certain events in the past. What, what about the pre-hospital perspective? How does it feel when you're bringing people into an ED? And I guess I'm thinking mostly here about critically unwell and critically injured patients, not just wheelchair push-ins. Sure. I think this is one of the areas of greatest contention in, in my daily tasks because bringing in a patient, we've taken a great deal of care to be mindful of where we've placed things and the lines and the order of strapping them into a stretcher and the order of how we can care for them and then walking into an emergency room or an ED and having immediate number of hands on and everyone kind of be getting involved before it's okay to get involved. So that becomes an area that is is frustrating. And unless you can really walk in and take command, the head of the stretcher of your patient and tell everyone hands off until I'm ready. Okay, so there's some issues there about how that makes you feel when you go into the ED. So it's not necessarily a pleasant experience taking in a patient who you're really quite worried about. Would that be fair on some occasions? No, on most occasions. On most That's occasions. That's accurate. Oh, gosh, okay. yes. You're a, you're a nurse by training, yes. and, and I'm a doctor by training, and when I work for the ambulance service, I have the same experience. I get tense before I go in. I'm often expecting certain individuals to be in a bad attitude to me, and there is a sort of concept. It's like, why did you bring this patient here? It's trouble for us, and I'm sort of going like, oh, it's because there's a big sign outside. It says emergency, <laughs> and, uh, and I called, and you said you'd take them, So, but there is a bad attitude sometimes, and as if the person on triage is a gatekeeper and is somehow protecting the hospital from your patient, and, I, and there's a basically a siloing of responsibilities and not a continuum through. If there was a continuum and I felt like you guys are interested in taking my patient, I would feel good, I would feel better going in there, but it doesn't always, it doesn't always feel like that. Yeah, and the patient really doesn't care. I don't think so. The patient really would like to think that this is a smooth, nice transition from one service to another. So, Rusty, you work in the UK. Yeah. Similar experiences in the UK? I'd say so. And there's a there's the there's the preconception of fear and anticipation of, of am I going to be good enough? Are they going to listen? What's it going to be like this time? There's that uncertainty whilst you're walking in. And you might only feel that in the half second when you suddenly realise, oh, I now need to do a handover and I, I probably should have given that some pre-thought and I haven't, but now I'm just going to have to cuff it. So there's, there's all of that complexity. It is a complex task that we don't prepare adequately well enough for if we prepared better for it, it would be less of a problem. It's like all complex tasks, they can be overcome. So I could talk to this from the ED perspective. I've done some pre-hospital care, but not a huge amount. 
so I can sympathise with this. I wonder if one of the reasons why the ED gives that impression sometimes is because we, from a different perspective, you've been put on alert for a trauma call, it kind of gets, or a trauma call, or a severe illness, you're expecting something to happen, and you kind of want to get on with it. There's a perception sometimes that you, the patient just needs to get into hospital because that's the place where they're going to get better. There's, you know, any wasted time additionally out there in the pre-hospital environment is wasted time. They just need to get here so that we can do stuff. And of course, that is insane. How long does it take to do a reasonable handover? That's a great question. And again, I don't think there's a clear answer to that because, it, again, it's a complex situation. I don't think there's a simple answer. I think the, you need to get the points across. And for me, the two key areas of information you need to get across, you need to get across stuff that relates to patient safety. Mm-hmm. So uh, the drugs you've given, anything that you've done, anything that requires doing immediately. And then the piece that cannot be replicated by the emergency department team, which is what was on scene. It's the one thing that you guys cannot catch up on, cannot be replicated, and must be in an element of the handover. So before we get onto the the details of what we're going to talk about, because I'd agree with all of that, in terms of the timing, that sort of balance, that, that difference in view between what you've clearly articulated there is a real need to give information across. And if you stop and think about it, that's, that's a good given, isn't it? Information is useful to transfer. And that pressure of time that the ED feels, that's got to be a balance. And, and the question is, you don't want things to go on for too long. It's not going to be a, a history. But too short is also not good enough. Doug? I aim for 45 seconds. 45 seconds. And I never manage it. Okay. <laughs> I practice it beforehand. I literally, it basically, you know, when you guys are coming in to do big presentations at Smack and you basically talk it over several times, I mostly work fixed wing, so this has become a little bit easier, it's a little mm-hmm. more time. And I literally practice my handover every time I, before I go in. And then I actually practice delivering it by calling the team almost invariably in advance and finding the person and speaking to them directly on the phone and then literally giving him a second version after I've walked in. But I do try to get it down to as short a period of time as possible. Pro- because I've been on the other side, because mm-hmm. I'm saying, give me the patient, give me the info. So I understand that you know, tension, but like I say, I've never managed to get it under 60 seconds, I don't think. I'm not, I suppose I'm not so worried about the time. If you, t- if you take that sort of timing, in the grand scheme of things, if you compare the amount of time the patient's already spent in pre-hospital uh, and compare that to the additional time to do a really good handover, it's a small period of time. If you take into account the, the travel time and some of the distances that we travel with our patients are actually quite big. We've, we've often been, you know, 45 minutes on scene, particularly if they're if, if a trauma patient who needs a lot of interventions, and then we might have a 20-minute, half-hour, up to 60-minute flight time. The patient usually can stand to wait another two minutes while we get the information across. You'd, you'd think that things were, that were going to change in that period we would probably already know about, so we're not going to miss something in that two minutes of time. And actually, that focused communication is much, much more valuable. I'd agree with that completely. And I think the, the test for this is how well does it work when there is an immediate intervention that's required? And I cannot help reflect on the night I met Natalie in the department and we took we brought a patient in. Within two minutes of us going through the door, the critical intervention, which was not a simple one, had been undertaken. And I've seen that same process take 20 minutes. So it's the dynamic is, because we would clearly communicated to Natalie, to Natalie's satisfaction what was required immediately. And then the handover took another 10 minutes because I stayed at the bottom of the bed and we continued to feed information in as appropriate to the process. The 30-second download, the 45-second download, the 60-second download has its value. But if you look at it from an educational perspective, how much is that is actually going to be retained by anybody? And some systems have a backup system to that. I recently handed over a patient where I gave a verbal handover and then I was asked to walk to the wall to a whiteboard and and actually write 
to write down that information on the board. And then I withdrew and I was quizzed a little bit, but essentially that was most of it. That went really well. So you're almost talking about two separate elements here, aren't you? You're talking about an immediate, what are the key parts of information that needs to go into the team, and then a further handover of a much broader sense of what's been going on later on. Would that be fair? Yeah, and in fact I think it starts before then, because the pre-alert contains information. You've got this handover information, and all of a sudden we're going into this multiple repetitive and all of a sudden we're doing some learning. We're actually learning about the patient. We've got some pre-alert information. Then there's the immediate verbal download. Then maybe a whiteboard. And then you go on to the, the, the quizzing whilst a more complete patient report is being completed. And that then gets handed over to the team in slow time. It's an event that continues and it's longer than the 45 seconds that you're aiming for. Actually a large amount of overlap. And it can, it can be easy to ignore that and not realise that there are certain key things we need to keep repeating to make sure they get across. We travel to about 12 hospitals in our area in Texas, and one of those hospitals takes hand, or patient handoff really well. We walk in the door, they identify life threats, or they say to the patient, tell me your name. They recognize that if there's an airway problem or if there's not an airway issue. And then they completely hands off until we have transferred the patient and also given our report. They do, no one moves. The room is completely silent. Their hands are behind their back. Now, that's really interesting, and I think that's a really important point to draw out. That handover, what you're describing there is that's a handover to the entire team and nobody's t- touching the patient, as opposed to a, a leader-to-leader handover. It's coming from whoever the primary caregiver is of the patient to the, to the entire team, in addition to the scribe that is taking down all of the patient information. And so we've adopted that almost as our expectation and rule, and that's how we enter every ED now that we go into, is we identify any life threats, if there are any immediate, and then we say, hands off, please, until we can move the patient over. We'll give a report, and then a a report is 45 seconds or 60 seconds long, and then additionally, I'll follow up with the nurse who's charting for the additional data or write it if they need to. And if it's chaotic, obviously, we'll stay around. So we have the eyes on, ears open, hands off. Yes. And that's the whole team, because I'm sure everybody's experienced that idea of get one handover and then you have to give it to the orthopaedic surgeon when they arrive and then to the senior nurse when they arrive and then the anaesthetist when they arrive. And I mean, repetition is good, but not on an individual basis. And I just think about this process a little bit more, I think. When you're doing that handover at the bedside, so the patient comes in, what are the mechanics of that actually happening? Are we transferring the patient onto the bed? Are we keeping them on the trolley? Are we doing this outside of the patient environment? Are we doing beforehand? How does that mechanically work in the environments you've been in? Well, listen, I can't say that there's been any real consistency across all the places that I bring my patients to. I have actually had situations where I have been ordered by an emergency physician to bring the patient directly to CT to the point of it's like, we are not accepting this patient unless you bring this patient directly to CT. And that was one of those situations like, that's fine, we'll do that, and I'd like to have a little chat with you later kind of thing. And it was literally, a it had to be conflict avoidance. And this sort of thing does happen. So every time you go in, you know, you try to set up an advance, you try to have a system. Ideally, they'll do the same thing the same, the same way every time. But humans are humans, and emergency physicians, you're not so great at following protocols and some things. You do kind of get a bit freeform. So I find that a little bit frustrating. The good trauma units... It's military. I mean, it just—it's the same every time, and that's a different sort of experience. I ask, mm-hmm. would you like would you like handover before transfer or transfer before handover? Yeah. And I've heard the, I've had this I've had different responses in the same unit. Yeah. That's fine. This is your patch. We're in your patch now. Your rules. What do you want? For whatever reason, let's make sure that we have a plan for it, and then we do it. I think we sometimes recognise it in the. I recognise it in my ED because you may well be talking about places where I've worked, <laughs> and 
by recognising that, I brief the pre-hospital team and say, this is what we're going to do for this occasion. But I think that communication about how the handover is going to run is really important. I think if you're going to do that transfer of information, the worst thing is to have the person who you're trying to transfer the information to thinking about something else, which might be, I want to get this patient onto the trolley and I just haven't said that. And why is the patient still on? Or they want to get them onto the bed rather than onto the trolley. And why are they still on the trolley? I want, I want something to happen. You kind of need to get them to a place where they don't have anything else going on so that they can listen to you and absorb that information. And so it's a really good idea to get them articulate how they want it to happen before you begin. And see, I disagree and believe from my perspective that I have been the primary for this patient for this duration of time, and until I have handed them off, they are still my patient. So everyone should be... I need people to do what I have asked them to do, which is all that life threats have been identified, we will move the patient over to the stretcher, everyone hands off until we're ready. And as we're starting to take off EKG leads and switch monitors and those kinds of things, people are saying, okay, tell me the story. And I just say... I'm not smart enough to do two things at once. Stand by. And it takes about 45 seconds to pull leads and do things, and everyone just needs to wait. And so I've gotten over the urgency of having to please people and give them information on their time. I need them to work on my time. I think that's agreement. I think we're agreeing on that point that you can't do those two things at the same time. So you can either come in, do the handover, and then transfer the patient over onto the bed, or you can come in, transfer the patient over to the bed, make sure they're okay, and then do the handover. You can't clearly do those things safely and intelligently. Pros and cons to the to the two methods, just for fun. Accepting that people will do different things. I'm going to go pro on... I'm going to go against you, Ashley. I'm going to go pro for parking the patient by the side of the bed, assuming there's no immediate life threat, taking the handover, and then moving them over and transferring them onto the equipment. My pro argument is that as soon as anybody touches the patient, they turn into a massive magnet and everybody starts leaning in and moving towards the patient and trying to do stuff. So if I've decided, or the team's decided, or my institution has decided to do the handover by the bed, you cannot do that if anybody touches the patient. So come in, do the handover, structured way we'll talk about in a minute, and then move them over. You're going to move your patient onto the bed, get them stable on their monitoring. Tell me why you think that might be a better way. For us, I think it's a purely selfish operational issue because as soon as we move that patient, the secondary nurse or paramedic can pull the trolley out of the ED and it gets it out of the way and, and allows a full 360-degree care. So from uh, for our standpoint, it's, just, it's, it's completely um, operational. There's the value in having reducing distractions in the department at the point where you're doing a handover because that improves the, the, the quality of the handover the information. I've kind of started to, to preempt this by I'm a privileged position of being a team leader and I tend to be the third person on the ambulance because I've arrived my car having been identified to be sent to a high acuity patient. If the situation allows, because it takes a, a minute or two to get a patient off the back of an ambulance, I will walk into the department and go, hi, my name's Rusty, who's the team leader? I may or may not recognise them and then say, right, this is the patient. The patient then arrives. It's already, the handover is already done before the patient arrives. And then you've got opportunity to ask the, the key question. You know, did you hear what I said to you? Were you listening? Would you, would you, is there any error correction in that transfer of information? A mix of the two, really. And basically my practice has become that I always get a call in before, almost invariably. It's very unusual that I don't. And sometimes if I've got a patient that's actually going directly to ICU, which is increasingly happening from in my work. So it's an inter-hospital transfer, but it's the same sort of thing. I find the nurse that's going to be receiving the patient, and I try to speak to the doctor that's in charge. There might be... If it hasn't been actually allocated to an individual doctor, I'll speak to the doctor in charge of the department. And I try to every time. I also try and speak to the triage nurse. 
One time I took, I took note of all the calls that I made on one retrieval, and I called the hospital that I was going to more than 20 times. Usually that goes very well, but that's just the It's communication, 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 and you've got to speak to the right people. So it's, it is difficult to pick them out. But I do like the idea in terms of the patient when you go in there, you've got it all sorted out in, in advance. The pre-phone call tells me what they need from me and the way they'd like me to do it, and I'll decide whether that's cool, and I try to be a little bit flexible. But my personal thing in terms of handing over, say, an intubated patient and so on, is that the moment I cede control of the tube, I have basically ceded control of the patient. So the moment that it's not me, holding the tube and the nurse that's going to be the airway nurse who is the most important person for the airway issue as far as I'm concerned I really want her or him to be in control of all this and so on so but that, that is when she or he touches that the home team are in just like you said so I tend to try and stay control I might even move the patient across but I'll stay entirely in control of that quite conspicuously and it's only just a symbol I mean the airway isn't that big a deal but there's something psychological about us as pre-hospitalists and I think as emergency people like the person the woman or man holding the tube is the person in charge maybe it shouldn't be like that but I think there's a certain psychology that goes with that I think what's clear with that is we should all be doing similar things on a fairly regular basis and if we're not doing things on a regular basis we have to be quite active about communicating what we're expecting on that particular occasion that be fair? Yes. Nodding doesn't work on, yes. <laughs> <laughs> on podcasts. Nodding is, everybody's nodding. Okay, that's good. A couple of things we also need to think about. I've always thought it's amusing that sometimes we say what we're going to do, the hand, eyes on, ears open, hands off, hand over, and everybody's going to be quiet. Shot, Mouth shut. Mouth yeah. shut, yes, yeah. absolutely. Except for if you have an agitated, delirious patient, which can be challenging because there is some, there's still somebody who joins in the handover. Just tell them to get in with the programme and read their admist and just like, excuse me, Mr. Agitated Patient that's abusing everybody, we're doing a handover, would you please be quiet? Does that not work for you? <laughs> not, not often, no. <laughs> we obviously have different patients, don't we? Yeah, but um, they do sometimes join in the handover, which can be can actually be very useful. You did mention a structure. You mentioned the atmist structure. There are other structures around. Um, atmist, I think, is one of the ones which is fairly well known it's probably worth us just talking about what that is mm. as as a model we're not saying it's the the only way to do things but how does the atmist handover work it's a for age the time of injury or illness which can often be quite difficult to get hold of and mechanism of, inju- of injury i also use this for mechanism of illness so i use atmist as a structure when i'm handing over unwell patients as well as injured patients injuries you've discovered injuries that you found as a result of that mechanism of injury uh, signs and symptoms and then treatments um, and then you add the bottom line is which is the recommendations um, which isn't currently in atmist but there's lots of variations there's a huge number of structures around a lot of them have been tested there's no evidence to suggest that anyone's better than the other at the moment and there is evidence to suggest that if you use a structure you would be better if, than if you haven't used a structure. And what works best is if the receiving unit and the pre-hospital team regularly use the same structure and then you're, they're expecting the information in the same order. I've tried to work with a whole bunch of them. I've done ISBAR, ISOBAR, and of course I think everybody that ever did ATLS did AMPL. You know, that's a sort of mm-hmm. uh, another version of it. And I just think I totally agree. Choose one, ideally have it system-wide and try and do it uniformly and then it becomes second nature like everything else. So just pick one, run with it. And if you're a team leader in the emergency department and you're working with a system where you don't have this, then you can still use that as a checklist to take the handover. So you can guide people through that if you need to. I'd suggest that if we are, as pre-hospitalists, have chosen to use a tool, it's also it's something that we can do, which is in the non-hot case, when it isn't actually a sick patient on a trolley that you're talking about, come in and do education with the guys and sort of saying we're using this and actually have a little talk to people about it so that the guys are expecting an atmist if that's what's going across the service and I hope that happens in most places I know it doesn't but 
it would be nice, I think, if we sort of reached in. And every single time you, you have those sort of education opportunities to get together, it just builds collaborative strength and, and everybody basically has a better understanding of the guy that's on the other end of the phone. I do think that's really, really important to do. I do think a little bit of outreach and so on. We're not always coming in hot. Let's take a case and we'll go for an urban environment. So somewhere like Verchester, post-industrial, northern town in the UK. <laughs> we're going to arrive by road and we're going to have a primary trauma patient. Okay, It's going to be a nine-year-old girl called Sheila and she's been struck by a car she's got a significant head injury and probably broken feet and she may or may not have other injuries pre-hospital service will go out they will make an assessment of this child and they need to bring them to a paediatric trauma centre how should that comms go in in a typical UK urban environment which you guys may not be too familiar with but we've got some idea how do we think that would work well from a transfer of information from the scene to the resuscitation team first piece is the pre-alert yep so the receiving team needs to know that something's coming in with as much information as possible. In some systems, that's a direct from the pre-hospital team direct to the to the team in recess. In other systems, it goes via a third party, a, a coordinating trauma unit, trauma cell function, adding an extra person into the mix degrades the quality of the information at the receiving end and that can quite often be seen if you've worked in, op- in environments where, where you've gone through someone else's handover, you get there and the, the picture hasn't been presented quite as clearly as you might have done if you'd managed to do it yourself. Just thinking about that pre-hospital one, to, to completely agree with you, the nine-year-old can become a 90-year-old on occasions. Yep. It's, it can be really as ridiculous as that. And of course, if you're going through a third party, you can't ask a clarification question back. So just explain to me what you mean. How do, and you don't get a sense of feeling sometimes that you do when you have the direct contact with the person who's at the scene. Agreed, but sometimes the person at the scene has really just got their hands full. Yeah. You know, sometimes you can be you can be kitted up. You can have Bluetooth headsets or whatever the sort of whatever you have in your aircraft, for example, and you can get that information across and keep your hands free. What's between your uh, headset might also be very busy. So, I try and use the same structure for the pre-alert as I do for the handover. Yeah, me too. So I use I use the Atmist. I'm not finally communicating that with the recess team, so I can't speak to the veracity. But you try, you do your best. Okay, so in the hospital now, yeah, message comes in. Yeah, uh, might come through switchboard, might come to the ED. We're assembling a trauma team. We're going to try and get the trauma team in the department before the patient arrives, if there's sufficient time for them to get there. From my perspective, I should then be doing a pre-brief before the patient arrives based on that atmist. So exactly the same information should go to the, to the team. Everybody, nurses, doctors, everybody, radiographers, the whole team get the same brief. And also potentially a prediction of what we're likely to need to do when the patient first arrives and how we're going to handle the handover from the pre-hospital team. So tell them what you expect them to do when the patient arrives. And I think that stage is often missed, that we don't use that quiet time before the patient arrives to prepare for the handover itself. I couldn't agree more. I mean, I've been sitting, because I've done a lot on that side of the, the whole process as well, and you're literally sometimes sitting there and chatting and there's jokes going down, and it's kind of like that funny little... People are kind of getting a little excited, ready to go, but they're not actually using the little extra bit of adrenaline for benefit. There's just, you know, there's chatter and so on and so forth. And, you know, whereas we could actually sit down and or even just sit around really, really briefly and just go bang, bang, bang. This, let's get let's get into the mode, you know. And sometimes you just feel like you're going from a standing start. But I do think absolutely use that information. I don't know. I mean, you must remember standing in a research area, so on and so forth, waiting for a patient to come. Is it always work talk or is there a lot of crap that gets I, spoken? I think that I think the real challenge is that you kind of get this drip feed of the members of the trauma team. Mm. And they'll often be the first person through the door, the Let's call it the surgical registrar. They're the first person in, 
And they, they want, they know they've come for something and they want to know what it is and they want to know all the information you've got. And you're halfway through, it's the holding on to that is really difficult because they just desperately want to know. So if you start to tell them, you can guarantee that halfway through that, then the radiology registrar turns up and they hear like the end of it and they say, oh, no, hang on, I didn't quite get that. Can you start again? And you end up doing this hodgepodge, half and half. Everyone's, you're not quite sure who knows what. And so I think it's helpful to kind of, to have an anticipation that people are going to come a little bit psyched up and a little bit, a bit adrenaline fueled and, and ready for something, and they'll want to they'll want to have some information. They'll want to get going, and you kind of need to manage that team and get things under control and get them all into into place before you deliver them what you know in order to control things from the outset. It's probably another podcast, but what I tend to do is try and do a big brief to everybody, and that might be just before the patient arrives when they've assembled. But I will go down and individually brief people for what I expect for them to do. So mm. from radiology, I really think this person's going to end up with a whole body CT, for instance, so, to, so that they've got an idea of what anticipating for them from a surgical point of view. I think this may be a surgical case for you because. So they've got a bit of individual and they've got a team. So we've done that, and I think that's really important. Our patient then is pulling up outside team leader to go out and have a quick chat a very very brief chat with the pre-hospital team to find out if what the at missed impression is correct i think that's fantastic if you can do it and i've worked in environments where it was done very very well but i also think that it's unrealistic of all of us in the pre-hospital world to expect that the team leader will be available to come out and speak to us every time so again if you can communicate it beforehand great but one of the centres that we work in, there is a probably 15-minute transfer time from the helipad down to the emergency department. And it's. I think the risk is if you've done that bit of pre-work with your trauma team and you've briefed them all and they're all ready, if you then walk away from that situation for you know the 15 minutes up to the helipad and 15 minutes back down, are they even going to be there when you come back? You know, Have they all gone for a toilet break? Yeah, I suppose you're thinking about it in the, the door of the vehicle. I'm thinking about it, do you have that opportunity as a team leader to just eyeball the pre-hospital team to make sure they know who you are, that you're their focus when they come in, to support them and to say, I'm going to help you do the handover, we're going to do a handover to the whole team, and I'm going to make sure that you listen to. I guess that's it. And that could actually be the, at the door of the emergency department rather than at the door of the vehicle. Yeah, that would I, I would possibly wet myself with happiness if somebody said that to me. That would just Agreed. Never had that. Agreed. A more common experience is we arrive and the team's actually not ready for us. Yes. That's much more common. Not when I'm on. Of course. <laughs> of course. I've never had that experience. No, I've, I've had pretty, pretty good experiences so far with the team being there and... and what we see in the Greater Sydney area is lots of, uh, particularly the major trauma centres, lots of signage on people so you know who, it's relatively yes. easy to know who the team leader is and that's hugely helpful if your ED doesn't do that, please do that because it makes it so much easier Absolutely. for me to then eyeball and say, I'm the doctor, this is the paramedic, I'm going to give my hand over to you but I'd really like everybody else to listen in. Okay, so patient comes in, we're either going to put them on the bed or not. Our patient is a, 14, is a nine-year-old girl, she's GCS 14. She's not acutely about to die. And so there is time to do a structured handover. Team leader, my job is to say, who's going to give me the handover? So I know, and use a first name. Hello, Simon, I'm the team leader today. Your name is? Hi, I'm Rusty. And going to take the handover. Right, everybody shut up, listen, and take the handover in a structured fashion so that everybody hears. And that's going to be, if we're using something like that, Miss, that's going to be relatively brief. Yeah. Get the patient across, primary survey, and all the medical stuff can then happen. Most of that's actually fairly formulaic. At that point, I think it's a really good idea for then the trauma team leader to come back and speak to the pre-hospital team again to get more depth. 
I think that we uh, that almost invariably that's our model. I mean, that's certainly the way we train ourselves to do it. Which is, you go and you give that you know short punchy handover in forty five seconds, and it, then things can move along. And then I think of it as like my own version of a secondary survey. Is I go in then to contribute to the secondary survey, and because there's some minor stuff that just needs to be handed over. Like I never, I never got to get these trousers off. I actually don't know what's behind there and things this sort of stuff. And it's, it's, it's bloody obvious. But so it's it's like the whole idea of the psychological message of putting in the uh, pelvic binders we used to talk about a couple of years ago. It's like uh, you know this could be a, a compression injury to the pelvis and there could be all sorts of issues with that. And in that secondary handover, there's a lot of other things like whether or not the, the lines are patent, whether they've been moved, whether you have any concerns about injuries that you are occult, times of tourniquet. So those are the sorts of details that, and also different members of the team, so the surgeons might be more interested in times of tourniquet than, than maybe anyone else in the team and they might come and quiz you. And, and But it's, it's concurrent and that's the key thing. It's concurrent because the team leaders then has the patient, has initiated their initial plan and they can then step back, watch that plan being implemented. There's nothing more. There's no new information for them. They can get some secondary information then coming in. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I think that that covers most of what I think I wanted to talk about in terms of handover. Final thought from me is, I think there's a responsibility from the trauma team leaders, and I don't think we do it as well as we should. That once that primary survey has happened before the pre-hospital teams lead is to then go back and find them and tell them as much as you know about what's happened at that point. It may not be definitive, but it's really, I think, very important to just get that early feedback into what's happened on a personal level, because it might come back through some system, it might come back through a form or an M&M review later on. But if you can just come back through a, a personal system, and sometimes it's just to clarify, the pre-hospital team, I was worried that this guy had a pneumothorax, but I didn't do anything because it wasn't that obvious. Either they did or they didn't. That's fantastic in-time learning and we're trying to do that more and more now i'm trying to do it as a positive thing but please if i forget ask the one of the difficulties we have partly because of governance and confidentiality is getting feedback information and it's not possible to complete the colds loop if you don't know what the outcome was and actually you get very stuck very very early on in your learning phase if you haven't completed that loop and if you don't have that outcome information and even if it's just in that first 10 minutes guys this is what we found and they can, then the, the pre-hospital team can then absorb that information. It takes more than 10 minutes to clean the back of an ambulance and turn it around before you can go. And in that 10, 15 minutes, the half a dozen, dozen people around that patient will have taken that, the knowledge of that patient far beyond anywhere where the, the pre-hospital team have got to. So there will be pertinent information that's useful that may then help them pre-hospitally in a further role, in a further job. In hospital, pre-hospital, we're busy people, we do loads of stuff, and that can mean that we fall really easily into the trap of thinking that care begins or ends at the front door of the hospital, and that is absolutely not true. That, that The fact that there's a physical wall there means nothing at all. We have to stop thinking about these things as separate processes and start seeing it all as one, and as a, that you know, just because they're slightly different teams who maybe don't seem to see each other every day, that they're not part of the same process. We need to think about that slightly differently, I think. I think also a little bit of love and respect is actually required to actually appreciate how difficult it is to be an emergency physician when we're coming in for you guys to appreciate how difficult it is to be a paramedic in our world. Um, that's exactly an amazing point, and I'll be talking about that tomorrow at my lecture. <laughs> yeah, I agree, I agree completely. Um, I, I do think one of the ways to improve that and establish that is we need to sim this more. I'm going to end it there because I think it's been a really interesting discussion. It's probably longer than most of our podcasts, but it's been good. I'm going to end up with three themes. Love belonging and feedback one last thing underlying everything we've talked about this is interface between organizations and quite frankly the patient doesn't care 
the patient is on one journey and we just need to make that as smooth as possible so if any of this helped that's fantastic if it hasn't well at least it's hopefully made you think goodbye from me goodbye from me thanks for joining us thank you and it's goodbye from them